Well, Trent already got us started in 1 Samuel 13. If you have a Bible with you, turn back there to 1 Samuel 13. Leaders often let us down. And I'm not just talking about politicians, but bosses, parents, teachers, even pastors. Leaders of any kind often let us down. Think about how often this occupies the headlines in the news today. How many headlines on your NBC News or your CNN.com or that old thing you might still open that's made of paper? Think of how many headlines are about failed leadership. Abusive parents, embezzling executives, dirty politicians, fallen pastors, crack-smoking mayors, whole governments jockeying for position, failed legislation back home, broken websites, even referees who got a call wrong yesterday. <laughs> Even the bullying that goes on in an NFL locker room or a new captaincy in an NBA locker room. It's all about leadership. Some leaders were bad eggs all along and their weaknesses and sins eventually come to public light. Some leaders were genuinely good, but, but through a series of bad decisions eventually become bad leaders. Some leaders are a real mixed bag. You're not sure what they'll do next, not sure how history will view them. And then there are a handful of genuinely good leaders, only a handful, there are a handful of genuinely good leaders, but unfortunately you can't clone them. And they can't last forever. Eventually, their term will be up. Their job will be done. Maybe their life will end. And the reins will be handed to another who, chances are good, will not do as good as their predecessor did. It's the age-old problem of leadership. And the book of 1 Samuel is about leadership. Not leadership principles for CEOs and managers and not as a prescription for a certain form of polity that nations today should adopt. First Samuel is about the leadership of God's people. It's about spiritual leadership. It's about God's rule over his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. It's the story of Israel's first kings. I know it's kind of confusing because there's a book of the Bible called First Kings and then Second Kings. That comes later in the story. That's why in the Hebrew Bible, it's not First and Second Samuel and then First and Second Kings. First and Second Samuel is just called Kings. And then there's Second Kings, which is First and Second Kings in our English Bible. Not to confuse you. Israel's first kings are first shown to us in the book of 1 Samuel. But really, this story is part of an ongoing story of human rejection of God as king and God's glorious persistence to forgive and to save and to work his reign into the hearts of his people. That's his plan. And at times, he does that through human agency, through human beings, through leaders. God promised in Deuteronomy 17 that one day his people would have a king, but he would be one of God's choosing, and he would be one who is humble. He would be one who isn't concerned with accumulating for himself. He'd be one who's selfless and for the people. And most importantly, he would be one who follows after God, who leads under God on God's behalf and according to God's word. 
But as we're introduced to Israel's first king, in the book of 1 Samuel, we find a king who's been illegitimately demanded by the people. They want one like the nations who will fight for us, win our battles for us. It's a rejection of God as their king. Now we have this king in flesh and blood, as we've been reading and studying in 1 Samuel. This king... Saul is impressive in appearance. He looks strong. And at times, he seems to be filled with conviction and resolve and and leadership and commitment to God and his ways. And thus, there's blessing and victory. But more often, this Saul guy is shown to be weak and afraid and overly self-conscious. Yes, he's a king who is approved by God, but for a time, for a season, as a fill-in. He's both a judgment upon the people's demand to have a king like the nations. They'll get just what they asked for. And he's a temporary hope, whereby God will at times use this king to lead his people in courageous battle and push back the enemy in the land that God has promised. His name is Saul, and we've been saying he's a mixed bag. The first time reading through 1 Samuel, though, you might not guess where the story's going. You may not guess where Saul will end up. And really, case in point is what we saw last week in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel. After Saul's military victory in chapter 11, the people celebrate his kingship. And then Samuel, the prophet, preaches to the people. He first calls for their repentance, for rejecting God as their king and demanding this king. But then moving forward, he calls on the people and their king to be under God, to be his people, to go his way, to follow his path. He makes clear that Saul is to be a king, not instead of God, but a king under God. A king like Deuteronomy 17 said, Israel would one day have. But it ended with a fork in the road. So look at chapter 12 at the end, verse 24 and 25. Here's the fork in the road of Samuel's sermon to the people. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he's done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. How's it going to go? How's it going to go for the people? How's it going to go for the king? It's a fork in the road. You wouldn't know at the first read, but today we turn to 1 Samuel 13, most of which Trent read for us already. And the the direction of 1 Samuel is no longer unclear. The future of Saul is no longer unclear, even for a first-time reader. In fact, it might surprise you, it's clear from the very first verse. Let me start with what might seem like a picky point in verse 1. If you have an older ESV, and by older I mean more than a year old, You didn't get it from a store within the last six months or something like that. When Trent was reading verse 1, you heard something different than you read in your Bibles. You saw some ellipses, some dot, dot, dots in place of numbers, right? The older ESVs have these, but in the original Hebrew, that's what we see now in the newer ESVs, you have this, Saul lived for one year and then became king and reigned for two years over Israel. What's the discrepancy? Well, Saul didn't start reigning at the age of one. Saul lived for one year and then became king. We just read that. We know he wasn't one. He was the tallest guy in the land. Uh, And then he reigned for two years. Well, we know it's got to be longer than that. And in Acts 13 even says he reigned for 40 years. 
And so some would assume that there's some missing digits in the original Hebrew that, that somewhere along the line in the manuscripts got lost. And so, and so the older ESVs just put in dot, 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 like we don't know what to do right here. And that's understandable. But I think what the original Hebrew says, and what the newer ESVs have, is important and makes sense. 1 Samuel 13 is now picking up one year after Saul became king. He lived one year after he was made king. Back in chapter 11, they made Saul king before the Lord. So here we are now. One year later, as the story of chapter 13 begins. But Saul reigned not two years, at least 40. At least from one angle he did. 40 years is how long it takes for us to get from the introduction of Saul to his death at the end of 1 Samuel. 40 years. But there's a sense in which Saul's reign ends two years from this point. Look over at chapter 15. In chapter 15, we'll see the final demise of Saul's reign. You see in verse 26, Samuel will preach there and give this judgment. The Lord has rejected you from being king. And verse 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you this day. That was the end of Saul's legitimate reign. He went on to function as Israel's king. It was called king for many more years. But that was the end of his legitimate reign. Hence, the beginning of 1 Samuel 13. Saul reigned one year, and then these events happened. And he reigned for only two years. It's that short. It, it goes downhill that fast. That's the point of verse 1. We're already introduced to an expiration date. Now, numbers aside, let's dig into the story. We can see four sad ironies to Saul in 1 Samuel 13. Four ironies. The first is Saul's victory. Yes, I used finger quotes. I know these are overdone these days. I got a birthday card recently, and I think the person was using these for emphasis, not for quotations. They're overused. I know. I get it. But this is important because there's irony here. And so Saul has a victory in these early verses of chapter 13, but it's not really his. And it's certainly not long-lasting. And it's not very substantial. And things aren't better at the end than they are at the beginning. So it's a, a victory, but not really. And so finger quotations are appropriate. Look at verse 2. It starts out like this. Saul handpicks 3,000 men. As a measure of his confidence, he dismisses all other Israelites. 3,000 handpicked elite men. That's what I'm going to go with. That's enough. There's something of cockiness about that. There's nothing wrong with using as many men as you got, even though sometimes God chooses to use less. Nevertheless, there are 3,000 men. Saul takes 2,000 of them, and he puts 1,000 with his son, Jonathan. Jonathan will become a bigger part of the story in the chapters that follow. Here, we're just introduced to him as Saul's son, and clearly like the number two guy of the army. Saul takes 2,000, Jonathan 1,000, and they go in different spots. Saul takes the highland further away from the threat. And then verse 3 just abruptly says, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines. It's abrupt because it's probably a surprise attack, and also because it might have been a surprise to his father. It seems like Jonathan is the initiating force here. He seems to be operating without his father's direction, possibly even without his father's knowledge. This is curious. 
Because the people said, we want a king who will go before us and fight our battles for us. And here's Saul, he takes 2,000 guys, and before he does anything, his son jumps the gun, starts a battle, and wins. Wins a key location. Regardless of whether he should have consulted his dad or not, this is great news, and Saul takes advantage of the great news. He sends out a press release. Look in verse 3, in the second half of verse 3. Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land after the defeat, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And here's what they heard. They heard it said that Saul, not Jonathan, had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Saul seems to take credit for the victory. He's in charge of the press releases. He can do that. Maybe word it in a way that, you know, isn't misleading. Saul's men did it. But the emphasis falls on Saul, and he's probably okay with that. And while Israel rejoices in the Philistine land, there's rage. It seems like Jonathan has awakened a giant That was caught off guard. So, second half of verse 4. All Israel heard, yes, that Saul had defeated the garrisons. They also heard that they had become a stink to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. A giant has been awakened Here's how it's described in verse 5. It's amazing. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of beth Again, a giant has been awakened, and now there's trouble, and so... Israel's rejoicing turns to fear. And look how the fear is described in verses 6 and 7. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan. They went back to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. What fear. And humanly speaking, appropriately so. When you talk about 60,000 chariots, 3,000 horsemen, and an army marching in number like sands on a seashore, that's that's pretty daunting. But looking at the whole picture, you got Saul's victory which wasn't his, it was his son's. And then this exciting and hopeful moment quickly is realized to be short-lived. And now the threat's even greater than before. And they were at one time organized and on the offensive, and now they're scattered and on the defensive. It was supposed to be Israel who is like the sands of the seashore in number, but the Philistines are as an army. And they're coming, and so the people act as if dead. They hide themselves in tombs. They chaotically run, and and somehow they get back together near Saul at some point. What will Saul do now? Well, we find out what he's supposed to do, and it might surprise us at first. He's supposed to wait. He's supposed to wait. He's supposed to do nothing. The right thing, the courageous thing, the righteous thing is for Saul to wait. And he does seven days until he can wait no more. Verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people... We're scattering from him. So somehow they made it to Saul, and now they're scattering again. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. So now we come, secondly, 
to Saul's sacrifice. We saw, we saw Saul's victory, quote-unquote. Now we see Saul's sacrifice, quote-unquote. You have to know that sacrifices back then were a prelude to battle. It'd be like seeking God's favor, asking for his blessing. Even the Gentiles around Israel did this with their idols. You're going to go to war, you might as well get right with your God or gods. And so this was a common thing. But it was to be done by a priest. This was priestly work. And in these days, Samuel functions like Israel's high priest. He's not of the Aaron line of priests, but but he does function like Israel's priests and spiritual leader. We find out why Saul waited seven days back in chapter 10. Would you turn there? Chapter 10, verse 8. I have a feeling this was supposed to happen, what's described in 10, verse 8, much earlier than it did, but nevertheless, this seems to be what Saul is following and what chapter 13 is alluding to. Here, Samuel says to Saul, Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So now in chapter 13, Saul waited seven days. And that's impressive. This would have been a very hard thing to do. These would have been some of the longest days ever. 60,000 chariots, 3,000 horsemen, foot soldiers like the sands of the sea. And you see them positioning day after day. You see your own people scattering more by the hour, more and more by the day. It keeps building. The threat keeps growing. The inequity in this battle seems to be bigger and bigger and bigger. Where's Samuel? We've got to get the sacrifices. We can't go to war until we do the sacrifices. We can't do the sacrifices till Samuel comes. He said seven days. Amazingly, Saul waits seven days. Almost seven full days. Notice verse 10. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. This makes it fairly clear that all of this happened on the seventh day. Saul waiting, Saul sacrificing, and Samuel showing up. Samuel was not late. And it really doesn't matter anyway. Even though in chapter 10 he said seven days, he also said, until I come, and then I'll show you what we'll do next. He didn't wait. He couldn't wait, he thought. Samuel sees what's happened And in verse 11, he simply confronts Saul. What have you done? What have you done? Just like God's words to Adam and Eve in the garden after eating of the tree that he forbade. What have you done? Just like God's words to Cain right after he killed his brother. What have you done? Just like mom's words when you were four and you painted on her wall for no reason. What have you done? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? God knows what Adam and Eve did and what Cain did, and Samuel knows what Saul did. It's a diagnostic question to see whether he knows what he's done, to see how he understands this. Well, let's see. Let's read his response. The second half of verse 11, it says, Saul said, well, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Now, on the one hand, this all makes pretty good sense you can sympathize with Paul with Saul can't you I mean if you were Saul 
Wouldn't you think this is pretty good reasoning? You've made a pretty good case. Isn't there a lot to pat yourself on the back for if you're Saul? I waited. I didn't abandon sacrifices. I embraced them. I didn't go six days. I went seven. Oh, but on the other hand, it's just loaded with excuses, isn't it? Isn't it? Blame shifting. The people, it's their fault. They scattered. Samuel, I waited as long as you said to, but you didn't show up. He blames it on the Philistines. They're coming down. And notice in verse 12, they're coming down against me. Me. Not the people. Not the Lord's people. Not even my people. Me. They're coming to get me. So self-conscious, so self-protective. He reasons, I did seek the Lord's favor. I didn't just blow it off. And I had to force myself to do it, by the way. I really didn't want to. I had no other choice. You made me do it. Just like Adam in the garden. It's the woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit, and I ate of it. God, Adam said to God. Saul's actions are not only sin... It's multifaceted sin. Again, Samuel was the functional priest, and he was the one to administer these sacrifices. Saul is king, but he cannot do the sacrifices. This is an unlawful sacrifice. Maybe deeper at the heart of the issue, Saul shows his lack of trust in God, a lack of faith in the Lord by being so hasty with the sacrifices. He rests upon human reasoning, not simple obedience. He's forgetting what God can do. He's forgetting the story he no doubt heard if he didn't see it. He heard about God in the ark being taken around the Philistine land and everywhere it went, tumors and death until they passed it around and around until they said, Uncle, mercy! And they sent the the, the ark back to Israel. God can do that without any army. He can do that without any human leader. He can do it without a king. And he can do it without your sacrifices. Saul's forgetting what God can do. No, not what God can do. What God loves to do and what God insists on doing again and again to show his glory, to exalt his power, to work glorious things out of weakness and in inverse sort of ways. To show again and again the battle is the Lord's. It's not by spear or sword. Put no trust in chariots. God has done it again and again. Saul should know that. He's tinkering with God's law, elevating his own human reasoning of the situation, thinking sacrifice is better than obedience. But Samuel will say in chapter 15, another time when he's rebuking Saul, he'll say there these fitting words. They could have been equally put in chapter 13. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Isn't Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 so apropos here? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. So Saul's sacrifice was no sacrifice at all. He hoped it would help. He thought it would be the difference maker. He thought he was taking things into his own hands. He thought he had no other choices except to trust God and do what the prophet said. But in making sacrifices, he actually sacrificed his throne. He sacrificed his throne, his kingdom. 
Samuel's words, what have you done? Again, it's a rhetorical question. So it's, it's an, a, a rebuke. There's already a rebuke in the passage. Samuel will go on to heighten that rebuke with judgment. But there's already a rebuke, and Samuel doesn't receive it. He compounds the sin by making excuses and shifting blame. We'll see something similar to that in chapter 14. Another one in chapter 15. We'll see it again and again. This is Saul's M.O. We'll also see the opposite many, many chapters later when King David is confronted about horrible sin. The prophet confronts and David repents. Back to Saul's throne. That's the third part of this story. Saul's quote-unquote throne. His victory, his sacrifice, his sacrifice brings us to think about his throne. And that brings us to Samuel's second rebuke of Saul. Verse 13, you have done foolishly. You've acted like the fool. Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. You've acted like God has not said. You've acted like he is not there. You're acted, you've acted like your God instead of him. How so? You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God in which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. The prophet entertains the, the hypothesis, the, the hypothetical. If Saul had remained faithful, there would have been a different path in God's plan. Of course, God knows the future, but he can also imagine other scenarios that could have gone a certain way and didn't. It's mysterious how those things work, but nevertheless, here's the hypothetical. If you had gone, then God would have kept you in your throne. But, but what does he say? Verse 14, your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you've not kept the Lord, what the Lord commanded you. Your kingdom shall not continue. Here we are one year into his reign. It seems like an understandable sin. You might find yourself having more sympathy with Saul than with Samuel. You might find yourself relating to Saul in his human reasoning and half obedience or seven-eighths obedience and less relating to Samuel who speaks this kind of harsh judgment because of one sin. But something big is at stake here. Saul's throne now is no throne at all. God has a plan. The Lord has sought a man, verse 14 says, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince. Remember, Deuteronomy 17, your king will be one of God's choosing. He'll be a man after God's own heart. His heartbeat will reflect God's heartbeat. He'll want to do what God wants to do. He'll be frequently concerned not with his own agenda, but with God's. God's will, not his. God's glory, not his. And of course, this is referring to David. He'll be introduced to us in chapter 16 as a shepherd boy who overtakes the giant Goliath in chapter 17. And then really the rest of the story has David as the focal point of it into the next book, 2 Samuel. David is in fact the promised king. He's the ruler from Judah from Genesis 49. He's the one promised in Deuteronomy 17. He's the one we'll see that's, that uh, Hannah prayed about and foresaw when she said, the Lord's anointed will thunder and defeat his enemies. He will be king. He'll be king forever. He'll be the anti-Saul. Saul's kingdom would have been forever, but David 
is not only told he'll be the next king, but later on it's told his kingdom will be forever. Saul was not a man after God's own heart, and we'll see more and more of that as the story goes on. Saul on the decline, but we'll see, we'll see David on the, on the incline, showing more and more confidence in the Lord, more and more righteous resolve. That's what's coming. And that's how determined God is to care for his people. And that's how adamant he is about his plan for righteous rule. But back to the narrative of 1 Samuel 13. Samuel proclaims this divine judgment, and it is divine judgment, not just Samuel's idea. And notice how Saul responds now. Verse 15. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. How does Saul respond to the prophet's rebuke? He doesn't. They simply part ways. The prophet and the king simply go in different directions. It's as if the narrator wants us to imagine either Saul or Samuel or both rolling their eyes at each other as this exchange ends. And then they part ways. Now, one important and easily missed dynamic here is the proper relationship between the king and the prophet. You might be imagining a king up here, and then down a little bit and over to the side is a prophet. And so the king rules, and he's got this religious advisor called the prophet who suggests some things. You'd be wrong. You might be thinking that there's a a division of authority here, like uh, the branches of the government. And so there's a, an executive branch with Saul at the top, and then there's a, a religious branch with Samuel at the top. And you'd be wrong. No, instead, the organizational chart goes like this. God, prophet, king. Because the prophet is God's mouthpiece. He's the line to God. He speaks on behalf of God. The prophet is not just a man. He's God's word. So when Saul simply walks away in verse 15, his unresponsiveness to Samuel's rebuke is not an unresponsiveness to a political adversary or just a religious guy or even a godly guy. His unresponsiveness is to God, to God's rebuke, and to God's judgment. And because of that, Saul's throne is crumbling beneath him. Again, only one year in. The fourth irony is Saul's quote-unquote people. That's the rest of the chapter. In the rest of the chapter, we see Saul's people from a variety of angles, and none of them are encouraging. Remember, as the king goes, so do the people. With Saul's sin, we've already seen, the prophet is gone. The prophet is gone. And what this means is that God's word is beginning to go out and away from Saul. That's huge. This will be a growing theme in what's ahead. And it's a theme taken from earlier in the book. Remember in chapter 3 how significant it was. It began, in those days there was no word. The word of the Lord was rare. And then God raises up a young prophet Samuel and begins to speak again. And the chapter ends. And the word of the Lord spread through Samuel to all Israel. The word was the difference. The word is now here among us, leading us through the prophet. Remember how Samuel's been so instrumental in recent chapters, like chapters 9 through 12, in the appointment of the king. God speaking saying, there, that guy, use him. That guy, anoint him. Say this to him. He preaches to chapter, in chapter 12 to the people and Saul. 
And again, it's on God's behalf. And now when God speaks through Samuel here in chapter 13, speaking rebuke and judgment, it ends with them simply parting ways. And now Samuel will only speak to Saul prophetically one more time in this book. In chapter 15, he'll speak another sentence of judgment. And then there's no interaction between king and prophet for the rest of the book. Saul is alone. Samuel is with David. They get together and they hear from the Lord. And Samuel leads David. Saul is constantly trying to seek the Lord's, well, the Lord's word. You go into a battle, and in those days, you'd expect that God would, would say green light or red light, blessing or curse, gas pedal or brake. And so you see Saul in upcoming chapters again and again desperate for that assurance that in this battle, the Lord is with us. And he prays, and there's silence, and there's no prophet. And Saul gets so desperate that finally by chapter 28, he turns to the witch of Endor to conjure up Samuel's dead spirit to hear from the Lord whether he's with Saul or not. And in that chapter, Samuel speaks from the dead And he speaks judgment again. That's how important the word is. That's how important the word still is. It's still that important. We need it. Saul didn't know what he lost. Slowly he will see it and feel it. Saul's people? Well, let's start with the prophet. He's gone and his line to God is gone. His army is now small and weak. In verse 15, Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men, from 3,000 elite to now 600. The land is now reclaimed by the Philistines, verse 17. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies, One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim. In other words, they came in at an entry point and they went in three directions, spreading out into the land, reclaiming the land, going wherever they wanted, taking control. And Israel is helpless, simply watching on. Why? Well, partly because Saul's people have no resources. Verse 19, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. Put all the Philistines, I'll put all the Israelite blacksmiths down in our land. And so every one of the Israelites had to go down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares. And you don't have to know what a shekel is to know that that must not have been the going rate. Philistines paid one thing for sharpening, and Jews paid something else. Monopoly. The people have no resources. Forget fighting. They have no resources within house for their farming. They're dependent on the Philistines not their king. And the army has no weapons as a result. Verse 22, So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. So two guys in all the land have weapons. And don't forget what they're up against, 60,000 chariots, 3,000 horsemen, Footmen, like the sands of the sea. Two guys, two swords. Saul's people are worse off than ever. And that's how the chapter ends. 
Thankfully, we've already gotten a hint of what's to come. Back in verse 13 and 14, we got that hint about the coming king, David. And he'll have an eternal kingdom. He's a man who God is seeking out. And God commands that he'll be the prince over his people. He is a man after God's own heart. We'll see that play out again and again. Generally speaking, we'll see that play out again and again in the life of David. But we'll also see that he's not perfect. He's not perfect and he's not forever. He'll hand the kingdom to his son. And as we're introduced to him, it simply says, And Solomon did not follow the Lord as his father did. David's a man after God's own heart, generally speaking, but not perfectly so and not forever. He's not eternal. So what hope is there? Oh, there's greater hope than David. Of course, you can't help but hear the ringing of the Jesus bell in these pages, can you? You see, we shouldn't just think of the anticipation of David, but we should think of the anticipation of David's greater son, Jesus. That's why Matthew begins his account of Jesus' life with a genealogy. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The fulfillment of the promises. David kind of fulfilled them. Jesus really fulfilled them on an infinitely higher plane because he was perfect. He was tempted even by Satan in the wilderness. Not Philistines, by Satan. But he obeyed. And he clinged to God's word. He said to the tempter, man shall not live by bread alone, but by God's word. He said to the tempter, it's written in scripture, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And that's exactly what Jesus did throughout his, his life here on earth. And he was not only completely righteous, but he was righteous on our behalf. He became righteousness as a gift. Just like we inherited from Adam sin and judgment, from Jesus we inherit righteousness and blessing. That's what Romans 5 says. One trespass in Adam led to condemnation for all men. Similarly, the one act of righteousness from Jesus leads to justification and life for all men. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul also says, For our sake, God made him Jesus to be sin, him who knew no sin. He bore sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him. A man after God's own heart indeed. A man after God's own heart to the fullest. And one who is forever. And whose kingdom is forever. His kingdom is not only righteous, but it's eternal. So in Hebrews 1, the writer of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 45. And it says in Hebrews 1, Of the Son, the psalmist in Psalm 45 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of rightness, uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. He's the king. He's righteous. He sacrificed righteously on our behalf as a gift that we might be declared righteous. Not because we are righteous, but because it's a gift and we trust that it's so. And he reigns righteously and will reign forever and ever. 1 Samuel 13 drives us inexorably to these things about Jesus. But 1 Samuel 13 also powerfully warns us, Christians, about the deception of sin. Sin is sneaky. Sin often has a religious component to it. 1 Samuel 13 
powerfully warns us about the importance of full obedience to God, wholehearted obedience to God. And 1 Samuel 13 also powerfully warns us about the dangers of relying on our own reasoning, our own apprehension of a situation, what we should do, what's needed here. We Christians, we walk by faith, not by sight. All the time. We should. No, we're not in a battle with the Philistines. We're not waiting on the prophet to show up for sacrifices. But there are other ways in which we on a daily basis, are tempted to not give full obedience to the Lord because our thinking gets in the way. We worry because it feels like it does something. We tell ourselves we're working on solving the problem, not worrying, I'm just working on the problem. The assumption is God isn't. He doesn't know, he doesn't care, he doesn't hear. We don't pray. It doesn't seem to do any good. We know he knows. He'll do something if he wants to, but I can't control that, and so why pray? It's rational thinking, but it's not faith. Giving financially to the work of the Lord, to his kingdom, to his church, it may not seem like the best thing for us. It doesn't seem like that's how we're going to survive this month. But To obey is better than sacrifice. Forgiving others when they sin against us. It doesn't feel right. And so we hold their guilt in our hands and over their heads. Church discipline for a church. You turn to Matthew 18, we get a prescription of what to do. It doesn't look right. Simply interpreting, understanding death and and sickness and trials in this world. We're tempted to view them just like the world does. But the word tells us to view them differently. And so we come back to that issue of the life and death necessity of God's word. We got to go to the word. We got to keep to the word. Because he's spoken He's given us a prophet who's not just a good prophet, not just keeps us connected, but he's also a priest who intercedes for us, gives us access to God, and he reigns. And he'll do it forever. Christ alone's our only hope. Let's pray. Father, it sure is not of human wisdom or thinking to look upon the cross, or even the baby in the manger in Bethlehem and see salvation or see a king. But we trust you that in Jesus of Nazareth we have righteousness, we have your reign entering human hearts, we have salvation, we have hope and joy. We thank you for Christ, our righteousness, our Savior, our friend, our Lord and King. It's in his name we pray today. Help us now to sing in his name and of his great name for your glory. Amen.